Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Christiana Best, host of the podcast Inside Out, Outside In. This podcast was developed for and by colleges and universities and its surrounding and supporting communities. The goal of the podcast is to inform, educate, and build community as well as inspire change. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of any college, university, or institution. So we're continuing our conversation on COVID-19 and equity. I invited two of my friends and colleagues, Dr. Valerie Bryan and Dr. Melba Nicholson-Sullivan from New York City. One is a clinical psychologist, the other one is a clinical social worker with their own private practices. And just to talk to me about what's been going on in New York City during this pandemic how are they doing, how are their families doing, as well as their patients that they work with. But I will say that this interview is taking place shortly after of the killing of several black bodies. And so this conversation is going to be raw. It's going to be, um, uh, uh, there is no telling what's going to happen, what's going to come up. So I am Dr. Melba Nicholson-Sullivan. I'm a licensed clinical community psychologist and a people, culture, and systems consultant. I I identify as a descendant of enslaved people. I've learned about my ancestors in this COVID-19 experience. So I actually learned the name of Jesse Mosley, who was kidnapped on the continent of Africa and trafficked uh, through Mississippi. I uh, go by the pronouns she, her, they, them. I am a mother and a wife to a seven-year-old. And I work as a uh, entrepreneur and both doing the individual and group counseling as well as training and teaching. I've been faculty at several American universities in addition to um, working in the human rights field and supporting human rights organizations in particular, but also the government and, and clients in the corporate sector around how do you create diverse diverse and inclusive uh, environments that honor the humanity of, of everybody on the team. Thank you. Very important, right? Not just having people there, but having people who are knowledgeable and are um, going to be supporting and lifting up people of color in a meaningful way. All right, um, Valerie Bryant. Hi, I'm Dr. Valerie Bryant, and um, I uh, was formerly a um, assistant chair and um, in academia tenured for 20 years or so. And um, I left academia about 10 years ago at this point um, because to be honest, I didn't like the way that they, was, they were really treating me and treating many of my associates. And so I just continued on doing my private practice that I have been doing now for 25 years or so. 
Um, I'm a psychoanalyst. Um, I consult and I supervise trauma students in various institutes. I teach intergenerational trauma as well as um, beginning a, uh, starting a, a training for African-American uh, 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 African-Americans to learn about somatic experience. As a trauma therapist, I specialize in EMDR and somatic experience because I feel that trauma is very much living in the body. And um, for the past eight, nine years or so, I've been really examining and looking at my own intergenerational trauma and really assessing how this affects um, our world in terms of, of everyone's intergenerational trauma that people are not really aware of and how it gets acted out and reenacted in all kinds of ways. And I believe that part of this is what's going on in terms of uh, so many of the murders and the killings. That's not new to us, not new to us. But I have to say my heart is really, really heavy with all that, which is what is going on, as well as the reactions, both positive and negative. But it's a joy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so given that you just started us out by saying your heart is heavy, I think we should start there. Let's let's talk about what's making your heart heavy at this point. So, I mean, it's every day, one murder after another of a black man, as far as I'm concerned, an innocent black man that's been murdered by the police or someone who's a wannabe cop or that there are people who are being hung by very, very strange circumstances. And it's not new for us, it's not new. It just seems to be happening more and more as the protests continue. I mean, Black Lives Matter is really, really has gotten a foothold on the world right now. And um, I'm grateful and honored to be part of it and to be living at this time. We don't know what's going to happen, so there's a lot of uncertainty because there, it continues to be a backlash, which is always what happens all the time. Um, but I'm feeling both positive in terms of so much black and white and people all over the world that's really supporting African-American suffering and also recognizing our resilience. But I'm also very, very frightened um, by the continued uh, oppression and racism that we endure. And just the awareness of it all is extremely painful, even with people who I'm close to, either black or white colleagues who see and don't see. And that's just all I can say at the point right now, but my heart is really quite heavy. Sure, thank you, Val. Um, Melba, did you want to add or join the conversation around um, what's ha been happening in the environment right now with the killing of Black bodies? Sure. I mean, I, for me, it's all related, right? Like, when we are in this, this conversation is really about um, this intersection, right, between our identities, particularly as Black and brown bodied people, and traumatic stress. Uh, that is at and beyond the individual, right? That the, the impact of stress, the impact of cumulative trauma, whether that that is accumulated over generations or whether it's accumulated um, across contexts. And so, what I mean by that is, we're in a point where, right, like we were already navigating. Um, 
right? Like this kind of trauma, the killing of black bodies, as 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 Dr. Brown was saying, that's not new. What is new is the exposure to the triggers over and over and over and over again. And what is also new is new-ish because it's been here before too, right? Like we are on the eve and I just want to acknowledge this before I forget, right? Tomorrow is June 10th. So this kind of genocide, this kind of torture, right? I used to work for years in a torture program and people didn't necessarily talk about the U.S. as a place that tortures folks, but the U.S. has been torturing people because it's it's trauma perpetuated by where the perpetrator is systemic, is, is government. And so this is, we've been living in a tortured society um, since its inception. It's been built on these things. So for me, um, it's, you know, the, as a clinical community psychologist who also specializes in trauma and EMDR, I'm, I'm glad that, that Dr. Bryant brought that in. It's like, right, it's, it's sort of the, it's the unique sort of stress and strain and, and, and as well as the both and of like understanding how contexts shape all of our lives and black and as black and brown people, we've always been in that awareness. And yet our, our white folks in the centering of their comfort, right? I heard someone say uh, white comfort it will trumps black liberation, no pun intended, right? That, that the centering of the comfort of white people, um, like we, that is one of the choices that we have to make is like, we're not going to get liberated as black people if we continue to do the ways that we've been conditioning, which is to center the comfort of white people. So I am centering my comfort. <laughs> I am centering um, my, my freedom of choice and, and I have become more unapologetically black uh, in, in all of this. And it kind of started honestly with Aretha Franklin's funeral. Um, and, and it is like this both and experience of acknowledging the pain and, and sort of engaging in some of these survival strategies of avoidance and freezing and numbing out because it just gets to be so intense, as well as the thriving strategy. Like that's where we are right now is in this, uh, we have an opportunity to grow, to heal, and to be evolutionary in our response of like remembering that none of us would be here if our ancestors didn't have that resilience. Like we are the evidence that um, in the midst of it all, we still have joy. Uh, and it's not to deny or dismiss the pain because that's not useful. That's not healthy. That's not helpful. And particularly, right, because and it's to also remember um, that we still get to like how uh, revolutionary or how the resistance is also us resting, us, us visioning a future for generations um, some of the survival is also acknowledging that we may not see these these changes come to fruition in our lifetime, that this has really worked for, for, for my generation and those who are in different generations ahead of me. Like this is these are seeds that we're nurturing and planting for like my seven year old. Right. And there's a part of that that's also a little heartbreaking and disheartening, um, as well as like there's hope in that there's joy in that there's a bit of relief of some of this tension. Um, in that. So that's what shows up for me is, is, and I know I just said a lot there, but there, for me, there's a connection, right? Because we as black and brown people were already disproportionately affected by the stress of COVID and the ways in which our healthcare systems were uh, reflective of racism 
and these disparities. And then that here comes, it's, it's, it's sort of like, oh yeah, and here's the, the long-standing uh, traumatic stressor uh, that, that we've been navigating, you know, as a people uh, in the midst of all of this. Yeah, no one's going to come in saying I'm suffering from intergenerational trauma, okay? <laughs> right? But no matter what, if they are suffering from depression, if they're suffering from anxiety, I mean, typically, of course, we know the questions are, you know, is that something that there's a family history with? And then you can kind of start peeling away and talking about their families and then discussing and on trying to understand what those narratives have been in terms of what they've heard growing up or what they continue to hear that still informs uh, what their experience is today. Yeah, many people are now, I'm, I'm finding that people are now seeking Black therapist more than ever. Um, and, and I'm sure it, a lot of it has to do with the current events in terms of, you know, many of them that are calling me or asking for a Black therapist for their sons, particularly daughters, or even for themselves to address the trauma, um, the rash of killings. So how do these recent uh, killings how do you think they're impacting some of your clients? So I think there's a couple of ways that it's, that it's been impacting clients. One is um, for my newer clients, it's like, it's it, right. Like they, they were, they have reached, they were, I won't say fine, but they were navigating just like any of us. We've got our skills, we've got our strategy, and then the context shifts and the strategies that we've been using aren't as effective as they used to be or they're effective, but they're not lasting as long, right? So yeah, I'm, I'm having some sleep issues, right? And then this happens and all of a sudden, like, I think there's an impetus to seek, to seek a therapist because of the latest murders. Like I may have been struggling with something, but it didn't rise to the level of being intense or bothersome enough that I was seeking support. And so at least we're kind of like the last straw or the, or the, as there's a Spanish phrase, I really am going to learn it one day, but it's the drop that made the glass overflow, right? So there's that dynamic that's happening of these murders are the drop that made the glass overflow and made some of my uh, black and brown clients be like, I'm going to pick, I'm going to find a therapist. I've been talking about it. I've been thinking about it. You know, oftentimes it'll, that'll show up around New Year's, right? Like going to therapy may become a self-care commitment around the new year. And I feel like, you know, for some, I know this is true for some of my clients, it was their new year commitment that they hadn't taken action on. But then after dealing with the stress of, of quarantine and then, and then the murders, it was like, okay, now I actually am going to go online and find somebody because this is taking me beyond, beyond right. my limit. Right. Um, and then for other clients, you know, they are in um, very white spaces. So some of the other things that are showing up, like we may have had a pre-existing relationship, but it's like there's, there's this... There, right. I think for most, for a lot of black and brown people, there's an element of leaving ourselves, leaving parts of ourselves at home, like, right, like having, and we're not unique in that, except it's very much a part of the survival strategies that have been passed out through generations of, of, of the, uh, the mask, right? And so 
there's a couple of things, again, that undermine that. So teleworking, I can't leave myself at home the way that I used to. Or I do, and now my coworkers are like, why are you so... I remember reading this article about Zoom meetings and somebody, a Black woman, talking about how her white coworkers were dressed more casually. Um, they were making comments about her, how, how fancy she was, right? Or they were just had access to parts of her life that she didn't want them to have access to that didn't feel safe. And then this happens and it's like, okay, um, now there's this other thing happening where there's this, it's, some of it comes from a space of, of patronizing and some of it comes from like uh, that rescue mindset of the white folks checking in and it triggering rage. Like you don't really... You're not really interested in my well-being after seeing these murders. You're acting like this is news to you when I've been talking about it for years, right? Trayvon Martin, that that murder, Tamir Rice, those murders were were several years ago. You know what I'm saying? But then now all of a sudden white coworkers, white friends, are, or some of my clients are acting like this is brand new. And then they're responding from this place sometimes of pity, and, and patronizing, oh, how are you? And, it's, and, and they experience this like, am I the only black person you know? Is this coming from a place of guilt or this is coming from a place or with all of these organizations and their missus? It's like, you're saying something, but what you gonna do? Because there's a wonderful clip from Amanda Seals. I think she did it today where she was like, you know, we don't trust the words, white folks. Y'all wrote words in the past that served your interests. Like you're right and say anything. That doesn't, that's not necessarily translating into action. And so for some of my clients, there's, there's the rage and the anger of, um, and sort of this, like, you know, go Google it, but you're asking, you're asking me for a bunch of reading lists, like you don't have Google. So you're still perpetuating the very dynamic that is, is a part of structural racism, which is the idea that you look at me as, as less than you and that it's my responsibility to emotionally or otherwise take care of you. And I'm tired and I'm not interested. And there's also a part of me that has that legacy of like, is this going to be life-threatening? I may consciously know in this moment, it's not, it won't physically threaten in my life, but it may, it may threaten my livelihood. You know, are you going to fire me? Are you going to not uh, promote me? Are you going to say that I don't have, right? Are you going to bring in all of the tropes that have been used for generations to have it where uh, this organization where the leadership is predominantly white and now, or are you going to promote me and and make me a token? You know, and, and sort of like these, those are the sorts of things that people are dealing with. It's like, okay, here's the final straw and I'm going to go get therapy as well as like, you know, I'm pretty, I, you know, and being in particular work environments and having and being asked to navigate and having to choose, like, are they going to say, no, I'm not the one. I'm not taking care of you. Go find Google. Go find your, you know, I heard myself say to somebody, it took me years to get to the point to say, um, yeah, so I want no free emotional labor. I've been more than happy to answer that question about how you can be less racist or more of an anti- uh, ally or anti-racist. And here's my consulting fee. Um, but the, everything around us conditions black and brown people to to put in that emotional labor, even when it is costing us uh, emotionally. And, you know, as Dr. Brian was saying, like there's a physiological piece to all of this that often doesn't get talked about. But that's stressful. That's exhausting. That's fatiguing um, to, to, to be in that position. Thank you for that. Um, I want to sort of build on that, uh, Dr. Brian. I have, I'm wondering if it's easier to be 
to be with a black therapist, to be able to share openly um, the fears and the uh, pain and grief that comes with witnessing, uh, and and we've had to witness it over and over on television, right? So it's not just something you hear about, but it's a graphic illustration of what actually happens particularly with George Floyd, is there um, a, a level of comfort and that comes with a, a Black mother or a Black individual who just want to be able to be in a space with another Black therapist that can hold them, both the intergenerational trauma and the current trauma, as well as their fears and their grief? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um Black folks have been seeking out Black therapists much more over the last decade or 15 years or so. It's just has escalated more since this whole pandemic and this Black growth protest. I mean, I am pleased that more and more Black patients are reaching out because it speaks to that the negative self-internalizations or the self-hatred or us you know, unconsciously privileging white folks as better, that has that has been changing over the years anyway. It's just more so now. Um, I think that by far people are wanting to um, talk to black therapists who are, um, if they're black, because they do feel safer. It's a safe space. I mean, I'm very involved with um, meditation sangha and that it's really very important for me to attend the people of color meditation sangha groups because it's very important to see people who are like myself, who know what my experience is, um, that I can look at and see. And I think that a lot of black patients very much feel the same way. Um, there is, um, it's, it's a very different experience being in a white space with someone who really doesn't understand what your black body experience intergenerationally has been. So I do think that there is a, a very deep wish and longing that black patients feel and want and need in order to, for them to look face to face with someone who looks like themselves. So in that way, they can feel seen. Unfortunately, in our society, being seen for black, uh, uh, black Americans is not something that they feel very feel. They do not feel like they're being seen or heard, even if they are seeing a white therapist or even if they're in the workplace or even if they're in school, um, because there's something about uh, black folks recognizing and honoring and knowing the suffering as well as our triumphs that kind of helps to build their resilience and helps them to feel that they can move forward and be successful if you're being annihilated in both um, unconscious, semi-conscious ways by implicit bias and, you know, one's body picks that up, your nervous system picks that up, regardless of what people are saying cognitively to you. So that I think that more and more Black folks are recognizing and honoring with the Black Lives Matter movement how important it is for us to be with each other and, um, and protest in all the myriad ways that we can. 
um, in, in the way that we, we can with others our, like ourselves. And I believe that at this point in terms of white folks really uh, getting in touch with their own implicit bias, they really do need to have their own white spaces and facilitators because it's such an ingrained and it's such an embodied experience with this whole white superiority uh, piece here that I think that you know they're going to need a lot of help because for so long, for so long, uh, their narratives and their belief from the time that they were born and the messages that they've received has been that, you know, that they deserve and we don't. Um, so, Dr. Nicholson Sullivan, I wanted to ask, how does this translate in the work you do with the human rights or organizational folks? Um, so, for the most part, Dr. Brand was talking about the um, micro level. Can you help us understand how it translates to a more meso and macro level? Do my best. Um, so, Right, they're all intersecting and and interacting, right? So one of the things that I've started to do in my work with organizations is talk about the impact of the work rather than things like diagnoses. Like, you know, instead of talking about post-traumatic stress or secondary stress, I talk about the impact of trauma work or the impact of human rights work. And it's really interesting because human rights work uh, is 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 really an intersection of both, right? You're usually, in human rights, people are exposed to the worst things that we as human beings do to each other, and the worst things we as human beings do to each other are rooted in these systems that have values that certain lives are more or have more value than others. That then create policies that reflect that belief that. Uh, and that you know that the, when we're talking about structural racism, right? That there's a fundamentally anti-black and it's fundamentally racist and indigenous people. So you then create broader social policies to support that, and then that shows up in uh, organizational policies and practices that then show up in the ways that people lead as managers. That then show up in internalized. Um, beliefs about my own or somebody else's superiority. So they're all sort of working together. And the ways that I've gone about it is some of the things. So I'll, I'll do some interventions around values and beliefs, right? And saying, like, for me, my skin starts to go, eh. and, and I'll speak to this a little bit. Well, no, I'll say it now, right? The truth is that most of our disciplines, whether you're talking about psychology or social work, they're, they're infused with all of this racism. So any of the models that any of us have been trained in, we actually have to consciously and actively adapt that to the experience of black and brown people, right? And for me, similar to Dr. Bryant, a lot of that languaging, that naming is, is, is coming uh, from, my, from the communities that raised me as well as the, the meditation community because, because there's a little bit more. But when I look at like 
the textbooks that I that are available to me to teach even a course like community psychology. They've got statements in there like be mindful that this this might make some of your students uncomfortable. Well, this is higher education. And yet the textbook, when you get to the chapter on diversity, equity and inclusion, says be careful because some of your white students might get get um uncomfortable. So beyond the individual, it's, it's, those are the sorts of inquiries that organizations, whether they're human rights or whether they're academia, need to start to think about, which is what are you orienting around? How do your, what, what do you believe? Um, how are the policies that you're operating in reflect that? Are you a hierarchical organization? Because if you have a hierarchical leadership style or, or governance style, you are inherently perpetuating the structural, the, the racism, the sexism, the discrimination against trans and, you know, um, sexual orientation. All of that discrimination is, is, um, it's promoted in hierarchical systems. So if we can start to pivot towards a more collaborative uh, leadership style, towards spaces where one of my favorite policy examples is this policy of I have to uh, bring you a doctor's note. Like there's still a lot of companies where in order for me to take a sick day, I have to give you a, a note. I got to go to some medical professional that, that signs off and says I was sick. So first of all, that's getting all in my business in a way that I may not want you to be. And second of all, why do I, like, I may be sick of you. Like you make this job maybe getting on my nerve. And so really for everybody's well-being, I need to just take it, take it off. But that's the kind of policy that people don't even think about. Like here's the impact of people having to have a doctor's note to, to take, to use their time is, is starting to get into like the nitty gritty of that. And, and, but also the bigger pieces of, you know, are you orienting around promoting the physical and emotional safety of your, of your clients. So there's five dimensions that I invite people to reflect on from a leadership standpoint, physical and emotional, and it comes out of trauma-informed systems. Um, and I sort of tweaked it to make it a little bit more surviving and thriving oriented, physical and emotional health of your, of your staff, truth and transparencies in your policies and in the development of your policies and practices. And that can be anything from like the what safety and well-being could simply be a check-in. Are you, are you asking people to give you one word about how they're feeling? at the beginning of a meeting. Um, do you, does everybody get to develop the, the agenda or at least respond to it? Do you have minutes after your meeting? Those things promote truth and transparency, which promote trust. Um, is there choice in people's workday, where they work, how they work, what they work on? Are you collaboratively coming up with the goals or are people being dictated to and told, this is what you've got to work on? And are you investing in people's professional growth and development? Those are the things, that's what that, those, those kind of reflection questions and orienting around those five dimensions are the kinds of things that um, are really uh, evolutionary and growth-inducing um, when, when we talk about going beyond, beyond the individual. And I will just say this, at the individual level, the, one of the first things I say to people is, you're not disordered. Like, there's a whole, I don't get into the history of the DSM, but it's like, given these structures that we, that we navigate, given the context that we navigate, particularly as black and brown people, it, you know, first of all, it ain't post, it's present and, and future, and it ain't disordered. These are natural responses to the kinds of experiences that people are having at work, that people are having in their communities, that people are having in, um, in healthcare, in all of these different systems. So I also wanted to say, and I think you're really making such excellent points, Dr. Nicholson-Sullivan, but um, 
I just wanted to say that I think so much of it depends upon what the um, what the temperature is of the organization. How interested are they in terms of making change? Um, you know, I mean, people can give lots of lip service to what they want to do. And you're really making such great points in terms of different ways, in terms of being able to assess that and the ways that they can change. Um, but for me, for myself, because I am affiliated with many organizations and on uh, several committees and boards, I really wanted to do a moment of silence for George Floyd. And with that moment of silence, as I'm having a meeting in these organizations that are you know, pretty much white-bodied, except for myself. Um, that moment of silence um, brought upon um, people starting to remember and think about their own experiences growing up in which their parents were um, racist, you know, and that they could at least kind of talk about that. And through that kind of a conversation, then at that point, it's important for us to talk about, you know, what can we do in terms of changing our policy statement? Do we have a policy statement related to Black Lives Matter? And what are we going to do about it? And how are we going to create that um, for, for this organization? And then how are the ways that it will, it will then show up in this program as a trauma program in terms of this policy statement, in terms of changing and looking at the curriculum. And I agree completely with, with Dr. Nicholson Sullivan, you know, and I don't want them to ask me, you know, can I give them references of, of black scholarship and black readings? That's the work that they have to do, but it's really important in terms of looking at the commitment. And I do think that it's important in terms of looking at the ways that the institution can change as well as the implicit bias that people hold that they're not even aware of, and that you really have to look at both things together in order to be able to make real, real change. And, um, and it's, it's going to be a continuous process for sure, because people are in different way, different experiences and really also trying to figure out, you know, what kind of an ally are you going to be? What kind of an ally is this institution going to be? Are you going to be an advocate? Are you going to be an ally? What kind of you going to, you know, are you going to be a co-conspirator? Are you, how much help, how much do you want to facilitate? And how much are you willing to back up, to step back and let black, black scholars and therapists and, and, and people who have the experience and have the knowledge step up and offer in order to make their organization a better place to be for everyone? And I think that a lot of times they really don't realize and understand how much richer their organization would be if they could step back and let um, black voices speak and, um, and that it could really change and transform the organization in ways that could be quite enriching. So I just wanted to say that. I appreciate you saying that because what it reminds me of is something I think we've talked about before, which is that you know one of the challenges is that in certain spaces, people think they know everything, you know? And so they're, they're even, even, the, even the ask to reflect is there's resistance to that because they believe they know already, particularly for, a, 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 you know, the, if you look at the demographics of the human rights space, most there's very, very few. So if you look... If, if we're talking about disciplines, when you look at the field of psychologists, licensed psychologists who are people of culture, people of global majority, we make up less than 10 percent 
of the entire profession. So that starts to get into like what actually happens when people are looking for a black therapist and why it can be so hard to find a black therapist is because there, there's all kinds of structural things that are, that are going into that. And then when you look at something like human rights, um, though that, that is an incredibly white space. And when you start taught, and most of the time it is not focused. There are some organizations that focus on human rights violations in the United States, but for the most part, that becomes, if you're in the United States, that's when you say human rights, people aren't thinking of the U.S. They're thinking of other countries. And if you ask that person, you know, um, I'm not going to name organizations, but if you ask them, they, they think they're woke, and so if I think I already know about my biases or I'm not even interested because look at the work that I do, how dare you? Like I've had people say this, I am deeply offended that you would suggest that I am racist because I am a human rights worker. And I'm like, and you all, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The, the fact that you would just, in my opinion, if a white person says, and this, you know, I have to be very mindful of how I say this, right? There's a little bit of fear here. The conditioning in this country is designed for everybody to, for everybody. We are, it's part of the water, this racism, this sexism, this classism. And so to say that you're not fill in the blank is to say that you're not human, right? To say that you don't have implicit biases, to say that your implicit biases aren't aren't implemented because of your power position is to say you're not human. Like what has it that makes you so special that you are immune to what everybody has just by virtue of being human. The context that shape us condition us to have biases, to have biases that we're not even aware of because that's just what everybody around me did or does or talks. Right. And, and so to suggest that because you are in a certain field or you have a certain job or, or my favorite, because you are married to a black and brown person or because you have adopted and are raising black and brown children, that these actions, that these life experiences have given you some sort of vaccine or immunity to, uh, you know, to these isms, that is also something that I'm noticing um, is showing up again and again and again.